what I hope to see in the future is there's a healthcare provider on the battlefield that's at a rule one or a rule two with an ultrasound in their hand and that ultrasound comes back to my monitor and I can walk you through what I need to see to help you triage and manage that patient. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Army Colonel Dr. Kristen Mount is a critical care medicine physician, and Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Scott Grogan is an Army family medicine physician at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Both of these medical officers are subject matter experts in point-of-care ultrasound. In this episode, they discuss what POCUS is and how it is utilized in clinical situations in a hospital setting as well as on the battlefield. They describe various training opportunities to gain experience with this technology and how POCUS fits into graduate medical education, credentialing, and certification. Doctors Mountain Grogan relate specific examples of how POCUS can improve care at far forward medical facilities and combat zones and provide a vision of POCUS utilization in the future. Find out more about our guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist. Today, we're privileged to welcome Drs. Kristen Mount and Scott Grogan to Wardox. Kristen, Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Doug. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's great. So today we're going to talk a little bit about point-of-care ultrasound, and ultrasound technology has been around for decades, but a more recent development is using it wherever the patient is being treated. Can you give me a brief definition of what POCUS is or point-of-care ultrasound, and how has it evolved over the past 20 years? I very distinctly remember being a medicine resident in the ICU and having something called a sight right which was one probe that vibrated at the tip and a small screen that looked like a 1980s military movie sonar blip. And that was your choice to try to find the right IJ and and stick a needle in it. And so we kind of wink, wink, put the sight right on it. That looks like a vessel. And then toss it over the shoulder and continue to stab blindly until we were able to to gain access. And and so that was what what I trained on. And then fast forward all the way now to many undisclosed years later, and I think point-of-care ultrasound has become an exceedingly important tool, at least in inpatient medicine in the ICU where I practice full-time. I use it all the time for all sorts of things that I never really thought were possible way back when I was a medicine resident in critical care. I would echo that, right? I've had... It's funny seeing the, the access to, to ultrasound devices over the over the course of my career. And I do have to give a little bit of a nod to the U.S. Navy here, because if you really want to turn back the clock, the U.S. Navy diagnosed gallstones for the first time in 1949. So, you know, really going back to the, to the beginnings, military medicine and ultrasound has been around for a long time. And certainly now I would say that our definition of, of ultrasound and how we use it at the point of care is really, I'm going to use the ASEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians definition here to say that it's a, a diagnostic modality that provides clinically significant data that's not obtainable by inspection, palpation, auscultation, or other components of the physical examination. That it is a distinct clinical modality that's not just an extension of the physical examination. It is something that does require 
additional skill development and skill sustainment and additional infrastructure to actually do properly. But it is distinctly different from consultative ultrasound, which we would imagine, which we traditionally use radiology for. And, and now with the availability of it, it is, it is fairly ubiquitous and becoming ubiquitous, not just in the, in the military, but also in the civilian, civilian world. So let's talk about that. Who in a hospital setting is using point-of-care ultrasound? Is it just the doctors? Do the nurses use it? Do the techs, medics? Who's using it? That's a great question. And I'm, I'm going to answer your question with another question, which is who isn't using it, right? And and while I, I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and it, I recognize that a lot of people want to use it and aren't using it because they don't have access to it. But in terms of representation of the different specialties who are using it in some capacity, they really include, obviously, a lot of physicians. So emergency medicine, which has led the way in poetic care ultrasound, family medicine, internal medicine. Obviously, it's, it's integral to the practice of OBGYN but now pediatrics, general surgery, critical care, ophthalmology, ENT, urology. But then this also extends to our our physician's assistants, especially in military. Our PAs, our nurse practitioners, our special operations medics now deploy with handheld devices. And I would say that now there's there's an expansion into the physical therapy realm and really putting a lot of emphasis on both good skeletal ultrasound and, and potentially using physical therapists in the military as extenders in the capability to use ultrasound for other modalities. Now, I've had a chance to, to use ultrasound a little bit in the clinic as a urologist doing prostate ultrasounds. What other kind of things are people using ultrasound at that point of care indications? When, when we think about where point of care ultrasound is applied, particularly in the military, there's a couple different tracks, right? So there's outpatient clinical-based ultrasound, which tends to fall into specialty-specific, like you mentioned, with prostate ultrasound. And certainly, you know, everybody is familiar with the ultrasound that happens in obstetric care. Musculoskeletal ultrasound is tends to be more of a clinic-based modality. And then we're seeing some expansion in primary care, particularly in family medicine and internal medicine in terms of disease monitoring. So for example, patients that have heart failure that are coming to see you for dyspnea, it's very quick and easy to do a lung ultrasound to try to determine whether you think they've got enough pulmonary edema to monitor or to change their diuretic dose, as as an example. On the inpatient side of the house, we've seen an explosion in point-of-care ultrasound, probably because it's become more portable and more easily attainable. But the range of POCUS exams that you can do on inpatients to augment your differential diagnosis to determine successive therapeutics and to monitor treatment over time is really grown. I think probably the biggest area in inpatient that's grown in the last five to 10 years is, is bedside echo. A lot of useful information can be obtained if you can get fairly proficient at obtaining good cardiac windows. Never as good as the echocardiographers. I will never be able to replace an echocardiographer with, with a bedside echo, but very often what you're asking with POCUS is very simple yes or no questions. Does this patient have a pericardial effusion? Yes or no? It's a very easy question to answer with point-of-care ultrasound. And so we're seeing a lot more physicians using inpatient point-of-care ultrasound, and particularly for the cardiovascular system and volume assessment and things like that. And then the military medicine flavor of POCUS that makes us unique is operational point-of-care ultrasound. And that tends to be present more in a first responder role in a prolonged field care scenarios. And that's different from our civilian counterparts, where 
in our civilian counterparts point of care ultrasound, while while there is some availability in EMTs and first responder type scenarios, it's still mostly hospital clinic based. On our side, and we are pushing point of care ultrasound as far forward as possible because there are some unique advantages that this modality brings to role one and role two to medical treatment teams that are pushed far forward. So I, I usually think of it in those kind of three settings, operational, inpatient, and outpatient. So, you know, this is a, a War Docs podcast, so it's kind of military focused. And so let's talk a little bit about what kind of things are utilized at those role one and role two. Is the equipment the same that you'd see in the hospital or is there something special that's lighter, simpler, doesn't require as much energy, you don't have to plug it in? What kind of equipment is being used? Yeah, so I would say in general, from a, a physics perspective and a functionality perspective, the machines are fairly similar regardless of the location that you're in. But the features that you're going to get with a traditional cart-based machine or that's wheeling around in the hospital is going to be greater than what you can put in your pocket. But now you can put a machine in your pocket. So you've got machines that are wired and we even have some wireless that will connect to your phone or, or something that is a phone size that will clearly fit into your pocket. You can wrap up and fit the entire thing in a side, in a side trouser pocket. Uh, we also have tablet-based devices and those also are extremely portable. So even when we think about my last deployment, we had a, a, a traditional cart-based machine that when we needed to move it, it needed to sit inside of a very large, tough box that was very difficult to move around. And even though technically it's portable, it's still a big piece of equipment. And now I can slip it into a small case uh, that I can carry on my lap wherever we go in a vehicle so that I can pull it out and use it in no time. So I would say that from a portability perspective, it has we've come a long, long way from the initial portable, I'm using air quotes here, ultrasound that was developed in 1998 on a DARPA grant for the U.S. military. So now we are truly portable and can go very far forward with it. So now I'm used to ultrasound machines that have multiple different probes with different wavelengths. Is in a deployed setting, do they have just one probe that can do different wavelengths or do they have one wavelength that they're just stuck with? That's a great question. So we there the capability does exist now where they have some ultrasound devices that are capable of emitting multiple different frequencies. So one probe can be a linear, it can, you know, to the high frequency, it can be a phase array where all the, the, the sound waves are coming from a single point, which is a lower frequency. And it can give you something that, a, 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 that like a curvilinear, which would be again, a low frequency, which is good for, for depth and penetration uh, when you would need to get into the abdomen, for example. There are still devices that then can have maybe dual heads, right? So on one side of the device, it's a linear probe, and then you can flip the device over and it's a curvilinear probe. And, and so that, again, adds a little bit of flexibility while still being very mobile. So, Kristen, you talked a little bit about the prolonged casualty care scenarios. How can we use POCUS to make triage or ongoing care and evacuation decisions at those far forward areas. As we reflect on the medical care we've provided in past conflicts, we know that nothing stays the same. And as we're looking forward into the future, when we're talking about or thinking about or planning for future conflicts, we have to plan on the assumption that we're not going to own the airspace. 
And we're not going to be able to evacuate whoever we want, whenever we want, with the relative ease with which we've been able to in the last 20 years. And so now you're looking at a scenario where you may have a critically ill or injured patient that you have to hold on to for 12, 24, 36, 48 hours. And so as we're starting to teach some of the medical care, the kind of fundamentals of critical care support that go along with taking care of those casualties, point of care ultrasound comes in both at the initial stage in terms of triage. So being able to determine whether the injuries that are sustained are recoverable. So thoracic injuries, significant intra-abdominal injuries, concussion evaluation. So we're starting to see some some work on using ultrasound for uh, evaluating TBI. Um, and then as you are making interventions on a patient, right, you can follow along cardiovascular status, volume status, lung damage, and specifically in terms of trauma, we're thinking of pulmonary contusions, and you can watch those develop over time with ultrasound and you can change how you're treating the patient. And so it's going to become a very important adjunct in those environments where you are forced to hold on to injured people and ill people. And it's not just, I know, I know we like to talk about trauma a lot, but 80% of what of the medical care we provide downrange is not trauma, it's disease. And and so there's there are exams that POCUS can facilitate and assist with that will make that process a little bit easier, I think, than it would now without that technology. Can either of you give me any real-world examples of where POCUS has been successful at a role one, role two with either trauma or disease non-battle injury? Absolutely. So I, I have a bunch. And while I, d- I have not deployed very recently, so but I have a lot of friends that I that I ask these questions to regularly so that I can understand what needs that we need to try to meet with the devices that we may be looking for. You know, recognizing that that a, an ultrasound is probably going to be the only reliable imaging modality that you have at a role one or role two, it is really important to actually develop the skill to to use it. Uh, and and so some of the examples that were shared with me recently was, you know, a surgeon trying to determine whether or not they should open the chest first or open the abdomen first in a patient with penetrating trauma kind of in the box, right? And if there's a pericardial stripe, then they know they could need to go to the chest first. And if there's not, then maybe they're going to go to the abdomen first. An example was shared with me about a a patient who was on a long flight. So on on a, to be moving towards a role three and a surgical resuscitation team was performing serial fast exams in flight. And over the course of the long transport, that fast exam became positive. That allowed them to call ahead and say, please, you know, prep the operating room because as soon as we roll in, we know that we're going to take this patient straight in and open up the abdomen, as opposed to delaying even to get a CT scan while they while they're when they first arrive. I think that was very value added according to the team who who shared it with me. I think as Kristen mentioned, the disease non-battle injury is is so prominent. And, and so, especially from a musculoskeletal perspective, the majority of the injuries that we're going to see acutely that are DNBI are, are musculoskeletal. And so it's very useful for fracture evaluation, especially in rib fractures, because we all know that rib series and a, and a plane radiograph are not very good. But ultrasound is actually very sensitive for long bone fractures to include ribs. It's been used for Achilles rupture assessment, muscle rupture assessments, 
again, TBI. So trying to determine somebody who's got their bell rung, whether or not they, you're concerned for intracranial bleed, you can, you can look in the back of the eyes and do a measurement of the optic nerve sheath to decide whether or not that, that you need to be more concerned or that you can feel somewhat reassured. Uh, from a urology, urologic perspective, we look at, at kidneys very regularly for, for kidney stones, which we know are just incredibly common downrange to see if people have hydronephrosis developing or not. And then obviously we have a lot of women's health issues that uh, are downrange just like they are back home. And so we can use it for, for our female soldiers with pelvic pain uh, just to at least do some assessment to help narrow a differential diagnosis. Not that you're going to make a, a, a diagnosis necessarily, but it will help you differentiate a little bit. One of the things that we like to talk about when, when we're doing workshops for POCUS is one of those decisions that weighs heavily, I think, at, at roll one and roll two, probably less so at roll three, is whether you need to evacuate somebody to a higher level of care. Because it's not just sending that person out of your overwatch, but it's everybody that has to accompany that person back through an evacuation chain. And so if you can use point of care ultrasound to determine whether that right lower quadrant pain is appendicitis or not, or whether that's a, a musculoskeletal injury that actually needs intervention, or whether there's hydronephrosis and, and or pyelonephritis, and I kind of can't sit on this guy and tell him to drink a lot of water and strain his urine, I need to get him someplace else, him or her, or, or that pelvic pain looks like that's an ectopic and that needs to move out. Right. You're, you're making a better use of not just your medical resources, but your escort and your evac resources. And so the potential for point of care ultrasound to help assist with an evacuation decision is absolutely there. And, and I think that will also become an important part you know, as we talk about contested battle space. So the ultrasound machines that you see in the hospital probably haven't jumped out of a plane with somebody or been schlepped around on someone's backpack or have limited amount of energy or places to plug it in. How does the military field test this stuff that it wants to go to the, the tip of the spear? It's such a good question. I'm, and I'm really glad that we're talking about this because everybody seems to be looking around going, how can I get that thing? Why don't I have that thing? I want to get that thing. And so they have some money and they just go out and they, they ask their unit to buy things for them. But the military does have a way to acquire equipment that's appropriate for the various levels of care and the environments where we're going to find them. But this is, this is my plug for primary military education, right? For anybody who's been through intermediate leaders education, they'll recognize the lessons from forest management, where you go through the entire chain of process of how the, the Army fields specific equipment. And this could be from rifles to tanks to ultrasound devices, and that is it all comes back to requirements. So when the army develops a requirement and validates a requirement for a capability in a certain environment, that starts the flow of money and starts the assessments that are necessary to be able to get that equipment to the people and the locations where it's going to be used to employ that capability. So the army's done that. And we have requirements now for ultrasound at roll one, two, and three. And so with this process, they once that requirement is written, a certain list of capabilities is developed, right? So what do we need an ultrasound device to do at a roll one? What do we need a roll, an ultrasound device to do at an FRSD roll, surgical roll two? What do we need it to do at a roll three? 
So that list of capabilities is developed and then a solicitation is made to industry. And so the Army puts out a call to industry to say, hey, who's got a device who can meet this need? Uh, The vendors then compete, submit bids, which get reviewed for technical compliance. And then devices are chosen to go through field testing. And that testing, it kind of takes place in two parts, right? One is mill standard testing where they do all the the things that they beat up the devices like we would beat them up. So they put them in heat, they put them in cold, they drop them, they put them in sand, they put them in water and do all the things to, to show that they will survive all of the environments that we might take them. And then they develop a, te- a team that will actually do the operational tests themselves to, to get at those capabilities that were developed. I've been involved in this process for, for multiple different levels in the army. And it's really fascinating to watch the the Center of Excellence has a testing team whose entire job is to test medical equipment and to administer tests to make sure that everything is done by the book. They are exceptionally professional in the way that they go about this business. And as we do this for ultrasound, we're making sure that all the different populations are represented that may end up using this. So that is novice sonographers, intermediate sonographers, advanced sonographers that are clinicians of various specialties and, and training. And that way that we're getting great feedback in the acquisitions process as we try to decide what devices are going to go far forward. I'm going to go back to the story that Kristen was telling at the beginning where she was putting an IJ in and and used a, a very limited ultrasound machine and kind of saw something maybe and then flipped it over her shoulder and then stuck the patient to get the IJ like we normally did back in the, the age of the dinosaurs. <laughs> But the question, the question that comes up is, I'm sure at that time, the documentation was, yeah, we use ultrasound to uh, obtain access to the IJ, and that was it. But now we're getting all kinds of information from this ultrasound. How is that documented? And are those images available for someone else to review? And is it integrated into the electronic health record? So this is one of those really interesting areas where the technology and the adaptation of the technology has exploded so much and so quickly that it's kind of outpaced the infrastructure. So the infrastructure in terms of documentation, EHR integration, and then not only image capture, but linking image to the patient record, and then being able to go back and recall those images for review is still a little bit in its infancy. We we have pockets here and there where that workflow and infrastructure is established. In military medicine, that's mostly in the emergency department because the emergency medicine community has been far, far, far forward out in front of the rest of us in terms of point of care ultrasound. But that's one of the things that we certainly recognize is probably the next step for the MTF garrison-based use of point of care ultrasound is, is we've got a lot of people that want it. We've got the machines out there. Now we need to circle back and tighten up that infrastructure so that we can review images for quality assurance. We can look up images. You know, we've mentioned multiple times kind of using POCUS for serial documentation to track response to therapeutics. Well, that only works if I can go back and see what, what the lung ultrasound looked like last week or see see the cardiac left ventricular hemodynamics from from three days ago. And so it's limited now, and the documentation piece is ad hoc at best. 
but I'm I'm going to defer to Scott, who who has really been kind of the champion of building that infrastructure for the DHA. And and as we know, there's a two way street, right? So some of what we do in the field flows back up into the MTF, and then some of what we do at the MTF, because that's where we train and practice theory, flows back down into the field. And so right now we're we're in the middle of pots of users working to figure out what the right work- workflow looked like. And so I think what we're going to see, and, and Scott, I'll defer to you, but we're, we're going to have that workflow and that infrastructure at the DHA MTF level. And then that will slowly kind of float, I think, downrange. So DHA has been, has recognized this problem probably close to three years ago and started the process to be able to integrate point of care images into the EMR. It's it's actually not a unique problem to ultrasound. It also applies to endoscopies and to ophthalmic care, right? So eye care imaging, basically anything that's imaging that can be done at the point of care is all included in this. And, and POCUS is just one arm of this greater project. And so I've been involved with it for a little over two years now, trying to make an encounter-based imaging workflow so that we can get rid of phantom scans, which are just scans performed randomly on a machine that has no patient information and no no data available other than the images themselves, and then try to link them back to the patient record for patient safety, for quality assurance, for billing, for reimbursement. And again, so we can try to work on a pathway to skill development and skill sustainment for everybody who wants to use this in the force. Potentially, it's also the foundation for remote monitoring for skill development and skill sustainment. So to be able to perform quality assurance based on studies done at a location someplace else, maybe a single doc in a single clinic that has a single machine without expertise just down the hall. Because right now that encounter-based workflow is live, but it is very, very limited. So right now I'm the only user that has it, but it does work. So that now I can open a device that it's, that's mapped to a clinical area, and I can see all the patients who are currently checked into that clinical area. I can perform, I can just pick a patient and start scanning. When I complete that scan, it, it goes to intermediate software, which allows me to perform some documentation. And then I can immediately push it to the EMR and voila, it appears in Genesis. And so now it does link back to the images from Genesis, but it's immature. It's not ready for prime time just yet, but we are working on that. And it, it's going to be a little bit yet, but you people should feel some reassurance that this is being worked on at the DHA level, and it is going to be coming to them sometime in the not too distant future. So you talked a little bit about the difference in proficiency levels, and and you two are fellowship trained, so at the peak of performance and proficiency, but there's going to be a range between just normal docs like me, medics, nurses. How are people privileged in the MTF to perform POCUS? And also, if they're deployed, are they privileged separately or differently? How does that work? So privileging for point-of-care ultrasound is also probably lagging behind adoption of the technology. And, And we could do a whole, a separate hour or two talking about the discussion about whether POCUS is like the stethoscope and everyone knows how to use a stethoscope and you don't need to be privileged to use a stethoscope. There, There's a fantastic pro-con debate on that topic alone. Right now, POCUS usually exists as kind of a, a generic point of cure ultrasound baseline item in some of the privileging categories. So 
let me just say that before you want to start privileging people for specific POCUS exams, you have to have that infrastructure that exists for them to demonstrate competency. So I think there are some people that would like to have privileging in point of care ultrasound and have that be more specific than it is, but we have no way to demonstrate competency. So it's not unlike the other privileges that we ask for, right? Where you put somebody on FPPE and you can review my charts and you can see how I'm documenting, you can see how I manage certain cases or, or how I approach certain patients. And that supports my request for privileges. We don't have that infrastructure yet for point of care ultrasound, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't use it as a tool. It's a tool. And as you pointed out, there are all levels of training and, and there are very simple exams that you can do. And there are very complex exams that you can do. And so I think our general sense is we'd like ultimately to see some privileging for more complex use of plague care ultrasound. Uh, but the infrastructure has to catch up before I think it would be appropriate to push for that. I'm, and I echo that and then say that it is a privileging line item. And that's important to remember and that it's not something you can just stick in somebody's hand and expect them to perform competently or responsibly for that matter. And there's a number of people who have reached out to me that have just ended up buying a piece of equipment. They just start using it, have very little training and there's no oversight or supervision. And so it doesn't mean that they won't use it responsibly, but there's no way to prove it, right? And so that infrastructure piece is really, really important. And at, to this point, we haven't developed the central governance of standards that everybody must meet in terms of the credentialing committees and how they decide who gets privileges and who doesn't. One of the things that the Army was working on when I was on active duty was the individual critical task list for everybody in medicine in the Army. And that meant that you had to be competent in certain tasks in order to do your deployment job. Where is POCUS in ICTLs and how would you propose that we make sure the folks that are, were deploying who are expected to use POCUS are competent? I think most of where we see POCUS in the ICTLs, and, and for the listeners who don't know, there are only a few specialties that have their very own list of ICTLs. Most of the specialties are grouped under a 62 Bravo or General Medical Officer list, which is kind of your basic field surgeon type of line items. And so most of the point of care ultrasound that we see across the ICTLs is procedure-based, it's trauma-based. So where we see that taught is through TCMC and through ATLS. So for example, when I first took ATLS many years ago, there was no FAST section. FAST was not a thing. There was no section. We didn't use it at all. Now there is a skill station in ATLS where we go through in-depth the FAST exam. We talk about normal and abnormal and how to use it, how to interpret it. And it's very well incorporated into ATLS. And so you see point of care ultrasound in ICTLs related to trauma care, related to procedures, so thoracentesis, central line placement, that sort of thing. And, and as we become more familiar with POCUS at role one and two, and, and we have more use case examples, you might see that change a little bit. And I think that'll be interesting to see in the next kind of five to 10 years as ICTLs and KSAs evolve. One of the things for people who have trained years ago, POCUS has come on the scene a, a lot more prevalently recently. Where do those folks who are out of GME programs go to get training or certification programs for healthcare providers 
in the military that they're already out of their GME training and may not see it. Well, I'll tell you, that is actually why I went back and did the Emergency Ultrasound Fellowship. I was at a point in my career where I I really wanted to re-engage more aggressively with clinical medicine. I'm an intensivist. And so getting back in the ICU and, and all of a sudden I was seeing medical students that were rotating with us or interns that had come out of medical school that were being taught point of care ultrasound in medical school and were asking questions and wanted to use it. And I didn't have a good way to teach it, supervise, augment their skills. It was always something I had wanted to get better with. And then Scott came along and talked me into applying for the fellowship, <laughs> did the fellowship. And that is one pathway, right? So the army, the army has three emergency ultra, they're, they're under an emergency ultrasound fellowship umbrella at the emergency department, but they, they are open. Um, any specialty can apply for those spots. Outside of that, there are any variety of courses. So there are two and three day courses. There are institutes. Scott, you can talk about that. Professional societies offer courses. Almost any professional meeting you go to nowadays, you can look and there's an ultrasound pre-course. The difficulty with those, I think, is when you go to a two-day course, it's coming back to your home institution and continuing to practice. It's and you definitely it's it's reps, it's sets and reps, and you've got to do it and get comfortable with it. And then there's at the end, we can give your listeners a list of really great free online resources that they can use to augment their own skills, to practice, to look at cases, get used to looking at images, quick tutorials before you go into the exam room, that sort of thing. With regards to outside entities, there's not another way right now that's consistent within the military to consistently get the training that you would need outside of a fellowship. I think there's opportunity to open up more training for faculty in shorter durations, right? You don't need a full year fellowship to be competent. It really does need sets and reps, but they just need to be supervised and there needs to be some structure to do that. And we haven't developed that yet, but I think there is opportunity there in the future using the experts that come out of fellowships to help oversee that, right? Within it, within institutions spread across the military, especially as we bring that infrastructure up to a more mature level where we can provide some oversight remotely, potentially for people who want to do those things. So think about, there are some institutions on the civilian side who've done many fellowships, you know, two months or three months of part-time doing ultrasound in addition to clinical duties. And, and so there's, there is opportunity there for us to, to capitalize on that, to be able to spread some more competence around the, the military. There are some outside courses that you can purchase where remote supervision is being provided. So not only is it a one or two or three or you know, five day course to go to, but then you have the opportunity to get a device to do trim training scans and upload them to an online portfolio that can be reviewed by an expert or somebody who is, is paid to look at and QA your images. That is a way to get at it. It is expensive, I'm not gonna lie, and it is not always practical in our environment. They do exist, but they're not in such wide numbers that makes it easy for people within the military to do that. It's really fascinating to me that this is one of the first times I've seen in my career where undergraduate medical education is pushing requirements for GME faculty. 
right? Because we've got new interns and medical students coming out of medical school with POCUS training. There are some medical schools right now that are issuing point of care ultra handheld devices to their students. And so they're coming into our residencies with, with skills and knowledge that need to be supported and grown. And the faculty don't have that skills and knowledge yet. So it's a really interesting time to see that. I've not seen that before where, where undergraduate medical education is actually driving requirements for GME faculty. Is the military GME programs, is there any difference in how they treat POCUS from a civilian GME program? I think that this is still in development, but in general, I'm going to say yes. While there's wide acceptance that ultrasound is value added to any training program, in the military, any specialty that could fulfill a 62 Bravo role looks at this and goes, okay, yes, we need to try to get at this for our own practice within an MTF. But we also need to be able to prepare our graduates for where they're going to find themselves downrange, far forward, far away from other, from other resources. And as I mentioned before, they are going to have one consistent imaging modality available to them. And that is ultrasound. So there is an excitement and a desire within any of the specialties to try to embrace this and get the training for their residents. We've mentioned this already, but emergency medicine kind of led the way in terms of acceptance and creating requirements for residency graduation that included point of care ultrasound. They're actually growing that. So it's it's already been in existence for some time, but they're they're kind of doubling down on on ultrasound with an emergency medicine. And very I'm very thankful and very proud to say that family medicine in 2023, July, will have new requirements for point of care ultrasound across the nation, so not just in the military, to to have point-of-care ultrasound experience. And one of the ways that we've decided, we have discussed this at length, about how do we attack that? How do we get the faculty trained up to be able to provide those experiences? And what we decided on was that maybe the best effort up front is grassroots. So it may be less focus on the faculty and more focus on creating opportunities for the residents to get diverse experiences with ultrasound as they go through training. So that is time in the emergency department with a machine. That's time in radiology with a sonographer. That's time with cardiology to review echocardiograms. That's rounding in the ICU and making sure they put ultrasound probes on the patients when they're in the ECU, when they're in the inpatient wards, using it there. And, and, and getting those numbers in a longitudinal fashion so that they can graduate with competency and then become faculty who can help residents get competency. Yeah, I think the difference between POCUS and military GME and POCUS and civilian is absolutely, as Scott pointed out, it's, it's where are you going after you leave residency, right? And civilian primary care residents are not, for the most part, going to go into a scenario where they're going to need to approach a combat casualty and determine triage category and monitor a fast exam to upgrade or downgrade a triage category. And so military residents, that's part of your residency. You are an army officer and Navy and Air Force officer as well. And and you are expected to be able to perform a, a different set of skills if the military needs you to do so. And that is really where the POCUS emphasis is different a little bit in military residencies. As Scott said, outside of what the great things that you can use focus for within your own specialty, it's that overlay 
of that expectation of what we may ask you to do when you leave. And that is completely different and a different emphasis from civilian residencies. So while we can look at civilian residencies for infrastructure ideas, how to create focus expertise, we still have that category of operational focus that needs to drive what we build within our own GME platforms. I'm going to ask you guys to pull out your crystal ball and look at five to 10 years in the future and tell me where you think this technology is going to be in relationship to combat casualty care. What is that battlefield care with POCUS going to look like in five to 10 years in the next battle that may not look anything like OEF or OIF? What the military critical care community has been working on for a couple of years and has been really working on supporting is how do we extend ourselves onto the battlefield in that prolonged casualty care scenario, prolonged field care? How do you get an intensivist out there um, at the medic's side, at the battalion surgeon's side to manage those patients and, and stand by and assist? And so I really see point of care ultrasound as a tool that can be used for remote assistance and guidance through telehealth. We have the joint telecritical care network that is mostly CONUS-based, but does reach out through operational units from time to time. And, and right now we have the advisor line, which is actively used by units that are downrange. And that's, that's a simple phone call. And so what I, what I hope to see in the future is there's a healthcare provider on the battlefield that's at a roll one or a roll two with an ultrasound in their hand and that ultrasound comes back to my monitor and I can walk you through what I need to see to help you triage and manage that patient. And I would love to see that layered onto the telecritical care support that we already provide and, and kind of the standard video style consultation that we're looking for in the very near future. So that's what I would love to see. I think it's possible. I think it's very possible. We're close, but I, I'd really love to see that. In addition to the telementorship, I would say right now the largest push in ultrasound research within this community is artificial intelligence integration and overlays with devices. It already exists, although it's not, again, super mature at this point, but there are both identification and driving functions that are currently available in market products, which means that if I want to get an ideal echo, but I don't know what I'm looking at, I can slap a transducer down on the chest and turn on the AI features and the AI will tell me what I'm looking at. It will identify the right atrium, left atrium, left ventricle, right ventricle, and it will tell me what I need to do with the transducer with a little image on the side, which tells me how do I get the ideal image so that I can make an accurate assessment. And that's a really cool feature, but it can go further. So ultimately, we are imagining down the road, AI involved in helping identify not just structures, but also pathology. I'm not sure it'll ever get so far to be able to say this is the pathology that you see but just there is pathology in this image. And I think that that's possible. The, the other thing that we're seeing right now is AI overlays. So not just an AI within the device itself, but software that may lay on top of the software associated with the device itself that can do a similar function. 
And when you put that in the hands of a novice, you can then turn them into an intermediate sonographer. If you put that in the hands of an intermediate sonographer, you could make them equivalent to an advanced sonographer. So all of those things help, again, narrow a differential diagnosis and help you make those diagnostic decisions can mean life or death for some patients, and especially in that large-scale combat operation. One of the things that really impressed me when we were corresponding about doing this podcast was something that you said to me, Scott, or wrote to me and said that one of the unintended consequences of POCUS was reimagining that patient provider interaction and getting that hands-on touch and at the bedside interaction. Whereas medicine had gone from where we were next to the patient all the time to, hey, we're going to set up for a CT scan, get an MRI, get a bunch of labs. We'll sit in our office and kind of figure out what the patient has. And that was an epiphany to you that said, hey, that's kind of cool. We're now back with the patient. Have either of you had any other epiphanies from your experience in POCUS? Yeah. So I appreciate that you mentioned it. And and yeah, I would say there was a, Kristen and I think we're at similar points in our career in terms of moving towards administration and less and further away from the patients. We both had this desire to get back to the patient's bedside. And I would say in general, just think about the telemedicine landscape, right? We are getting further and further away from the patient, which is cool that it enables us to, to do that, but then we lose that touch with the patients and with their family. And I, what I noticed was, and in fact, I, I give my, my, my spouse credit here because she's the one who pointed out to me that every time you, you've done something cool with an ultrasound clinically, you don't shut up about it for two or three days afterwards. And I kind of laughed and said, you know what, you're, you're right. I, I should embrace this. And it really did a, bring a joy back to my practice as I found myself sitting next to the patient, so you have hands on the patient, where you can, you feel the, the skin temperature, you can see capillary refill, you can, and then you can visually show patients and their families the things that you're talking about, as opposed to this esoteric, you're trying to convince them what their CT findings were, and they have no visual of what that, how that applies to them in their body. And now we can use this, not just for our own diagnostic decision-making, but to help educate the patients and the families. And that feels really good. Patients love it. Families love it. Doctors, PAs, physical therapists, they love it. And it is just such a way, it's such a nice modality to, to bring us all back together and kind of revives that thrill of medicine. And so I do love it for that. But I will tell you that my epiphany moment came when I was first doing skill development, which I did. I did a privileging pathway outside of fellowship several years before I did the fellowship. And when I was doing my case collection to get that initial privileging, I saw an infant who came to clinic and it just looked off, right? I, I looked at this, this little baby boy and the abdomen just looked a little funny to me. It seemed lopsided. And, and so I was just curious and I grabbed my machine and I just took one quick look and I immediately could see something abnormal. And I didn't know exactly what it was at the time, but you know, really, I, I could measure that there was a, a tumor in his liver that was approximately six centimeters by six centimeters in size. And that was very alarming. I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't normal. And I made two phone calls. And within two hours, that patient was admitted to the oncology ward at our local children's hospital. And within a matter of a couple of days had started on chemotherapy for, for his malignancy. And in retrospect, I thought back about that and thought, gosh, how long would it have taken for me to get that outcome had I not done that? 
And that was the epiphany moment that started this evangelical outlook now that I have on, on point of care ultrasound. Just realizing what a delay in care would have, would have looked like had I not had that capability. For me, kind of my epiphany came after fellowship, actually, because I was so much more confident in my ability to just take a probe and look at somebody. One of the big decisions that, that we make in the ICU with a critically ill patient is whether they need to leave the ICU for a study, usually CT scan or, or something like that, because that's a big deal, right? So transferring a critically ill patient anywhere in the hospital is a dangerous scenario. You utilize a lot of nursing staff and respiratory therapists, and the more complicated and critically ill the patient is, the higher the risk. And so what I found was ultrasound was helping me decide whether that risk was worth it. So to give a, a solid example, I had a, a patient that had been critically ill for a long time. They looked like they were getting septic again. The answer to that is always to first look at the gallbladder because cholecystitis, acute acalculus cholecystitis will sneak up on you and will make a, a critically ill patient worse. It's one of the first places we look. It's hard to find. And after having done the fellowship, I can do a biliary scan. I can find the gallbladder and I can ask very simple yes or no questions. Is there pericholecystic fluid? Does the gallbladder wall look thick? If I can find the common bile duct, which is not always easy, does that look dilated? And, and if the answer is yes, okay, now I, I don't need to go for a CT scan. I need to talk to my interventional radiologist about a, a percutaneous drain or I need, to, I need to have the general surgeons come by and take a look at my patient. And, and I, I've been able to save patients a road trip, a dangerous road trip, because I can answer a simple yes or no question just by going into the bedside and dragging the machine with me and looking. And that was, that was a, an advantage of POCUS that I had not anticipated. I had anticipated being able to look at the heart and do a bedside echo and, and lung ultrasound and better procedural abilities, but being able to use it to help me decide whether transport is worth the risk or not was not something I anticipated. It's one of my favorite uses of, of POCUS now is to, to go and help make that decision. We've been speaking with Drs. Kristen Mount and Scott Grogan on Wardock's podcast. Thanks to both of you for discussing your experiences and insights about POCUS. And thank you for your service. Thank you very much, Doug. It was great to talk to you. That was great. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Wardocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.